So I started watching this show uh, with Susan and the, the family. A couple of years ago, we watched it. It was called Friday Night Lights. It was like this football uh, kind of show about this high school in Texas. And because I played football and coached football, I, I enjoy football. And I, so I just totally got enthralled with this, this coach and his life and the drama and, you know, this whole thing. And we just really enjoyed the show. After the show was over, Susan had this moment where she was like, oh no, I feel like our friends have moved away, you know, the, the, the series finale. I don't get to visit Coach Taylor and Tammy anymore. And uh, so um, then I started finding these documentaries on Netflix about football, like coaching, and I just started getting into these things and watching them. There's one called, uh, these are not endorsements, by the way, uh, but uh, I was uh, watching one called... Um, uh, Last Chance You, uh, just incredible stories of these uh, young athletes who got themselves into all sorts of trouble uh, with the law and otherwise and were kind of given their last chance to play football at this one university where they would take them in and you know try and help kind of reform them through behavior and external kind of parameters of the law, various laws to try and get them back on track and and, uh, you know, the explosive nature of the coaches. And so I watched all those seasons until they were finished. And, and then I realized I was an addict for these shows about coaching. And then I saw this other one called Friday Night Tykes. And it was about little kids football. <laughs> the kids, football players were like eight and nine years old. And I thought, i, I got to watch this one too. So I started watching it. Uh, not because I particularly enjoyed watching eight-year-olds play football. But because, again, the whole story was around um, these coaches and the pressure and the pressure of the parents on these little kids to become athletes and I just got totally into this this show and there was this one episode where this uh, this one gentleman sadly he was so invested in this minor football program of course all of us who coach it's, it's volunteer unless you're you know at a very high level you're volunteering coaching he's not, he's not making any money doing this um, not that it would justify what I'm about to say anyways but he gives up his family and his wife for this little league football that he's coaching. And they keep having these interviews with him and, and, uh, and he's crying after they lose their first little league football game. The coach is crying on the sideline and they're interviewing him and he's like, they, they don't understand what I've given up for this team. And he's going on and on about it. And he, I'm like, I can't believe I'm witnessing this level of He'd just forsake his marriage and kids. His son doesn't even play on the team. His kids are old. His kids have grown up. They're older. And he's still stuck. And I'm watching this unfold. And I'm just taken back by this. And he says, if I was to quit on these kids, you know, to to leave football, to be with my family, because my family doesn't want me to coach. You know, my wife doesn't want me to coach anymore. If I was to quit on this team, what would I be teaching these children? And I'm like, uh, you'd, you'd be teaching them <laughs> marriage is important. Commit, I mean, there's glorious lessons that could be taught by walking away and saying, see ya. But I say all that because I was just amazed at the identity that was going into the work. But then when I took a step back and I thought about this guy, I realized, oh my goodness, it is so easy for me to invest all of my sense of identity, meaning, purpose in my work. Right? It's terrible for preachers because the thing that, the thing that you know, tempts us and for us to garner our, our sense of meaning and identity is sitting in front of us every Sunday as we're, it's my job to serve you and minister to you. It's not my job to use you 
to garner validation for my own identity. But as I was watching this coach, I realized, wow, that's true of all of us. That Maybe not in extreme cases like that one, but we're not any better than that guy in terms of us looking for finding a sense of meaning in our work. Our text this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And Solomon has been going on this quest for meaning. And we've been working our way through the book where he looks for a sense of meaning in creation. He doesn't find it there. So he moves on to recreation. And he doesn't find it there. And so he moves on to vocation. And so we pick up the text in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the first seven verses. Again, and I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, but there was no one to comfort those they oppressed. And I thought, those that were dead were more fortunate than those who were still alive. But better than both of those is the one who had not yet been born and had not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And then I saw that all the work and all the skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. And this is also meaningless. It's like striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and he has nothing to eat. But better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of work while striving to catch the wind. And again, I saw meaninglessness under the sun. And I saw a person who had no one and he was alone. Yet there was no end to all of his work. And his eyes were never satisfied with riches. And he never asks, who am I working for? And why am I depriving myself of happiness? This also is meaningless and an unhappy business. This is God's word. Now the wisdom literature in Ecclesiastes, as we've been learning these few weeks, and if you're new this morning, this is your first Sunday kind of with us as you're jumping into the middle of this, Ecclesiastes is not a book that is like an encouraging meal. It's more like an eyewash station. You don't read Ecclesiastes and after reading it, leave going, mmm, I'm satisfied. You actually read Ecclesiastes and leave going, why am I so unsatisfied? That's the purpose of the book. It's not pastoral, it's philosophical. It's causing for us to look at why we are so um, unhappy and striving after meaning. And even though the tone of Ecclesiastes is depression, the goal is liberation because it moves us from a sense of hopelessness to hope. That's uh, the goal of, uh, uh, behind the book of why God in his great grace has given us uh, this. And the reason for this is because by exposing the hopelessness of this short temporal reality, God shifts us into contemplating an eternal reality. And the good news of life with God that is eternal, it utterly transforms your day-to-day, how you engage with the temporal. And so if, if you're new to the scriptures and you're new to the Bible, when I say escaping the temporal, I don't, mean, I don't mean that we leave and we just become like stardust and a ethereal part of the universe. The Bible doesn't teach that in the end, Christians just kind of get zap fried out of here and then we wear diapers and we play harps and we float around for eternity. 
You know, if you're a kid and you think, no, there's all these amazing things I want to do. I hope Jesus doesn't return next week. You know, I used to think that all the time as a kid because eschatology was kind of ruined because the way heaven was explained is it's like, do you enjoy this church service, church? Well, this is going to be what it's like forever. And then you're like, no, I don't want to go to heaven if we just sing for forever. The musicians are like, yeah. But the rest of you who aren't musicians are like, no. What the Bible teaches eschatology in a nutshell, is that everything that God created and intended in the beginning, he's restoring. Which means this earth restored. Us restored. You who's really you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches us things. They looked at him, they recognized him, it was him. You will be raised, it will be you. The glorious uniqueness to your personality and your gifts, and that, that will be you. He will be restored. The resurrection of Christ gives us clues to this. After Jesus rose, he said things like, hey, do you have anything to eat? I'm hungry. I'd like a piece of fish. Why does the Bible give you that kind of detail? Because it's a historical account. It's not, uh, it's not uh, fancy poetry. If, it, if the resurrection wasn't, wasn't real and it was just fancy poetry, it would be written totally different because that's not the, the genre of ancient fa- fancy poetry. You know, Zeus wasn't saying things like, shall I have a piece of fish? That's not how you write it. It's a historical account. Jesus really said that. Why do we have these details? Because God is restoring everything. And so it's, it's contemplating the goodness of the gospel and the restoration of Jesus Christ and what that means, I'm sorry, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means. That's what changes our temporal, that this life isn't all there is. And so Solomon is working us through um, all of these things. And so that's why, like all the rest of the Bible, we have to read Ecclesiastes through a cross-shaped lens because all of the probing questions of the wisdom literature of Solomon are not actually answered by Solomon. They're answered by the one who is greater than Solomon. And that's where this text goes. That's where every sermon goes, to Jesus Christ. It's predictable. If you've been at Redeemer for any length of time, you already know where this sermon is headed. It's got to get to Jesus. And the reason for that is because that's the only way to understand the Bible. That's how Jesus said that's the only way to understand the Bible in Luke 24. You can leave this sermon today, and you can get out in your car... And you can pick any exit from the parking lot. It doesn't matter which street you take. You can get to your house from any street in this city. And that's how the scriptures are understood. Every street, every passage, finds its way home in Christ. And that's how we understand this depressing uh, tone that's taking place as it's provoking us very thoughtfully here in Ecclesiastes. As, we think, as Solomon's thinking about work, and thinking about why he's not finding any meaning in his work. And so, when you get to uh, verses 1 to 3, he's bothered by oppression. He's bothered by this oppression. That's how it starts out. Now remember, leading up to this point, he's bothered by creation. Because he realizes if this life is all there is, and there's no God beyond the sun, then you can drone on about legacy, and leaving a dent in the world, and making a difference. But in, there's an ocean of time coming, and it's going to wash everything away that you say that matters. No, but we're leaving it better for the next generation. Yeah, but in a billion years, not what you're saying doesn't matter. If there is no God and there's only life under the sun, this is where Solomon goes. He says one generation comes and goes and the earth remains. It doesn't matter. So he's dissatisfied with the creation. And then he's dissatisfied with his recreation because he builds houses and pools and he does all these things. And he lives in incredible luxury and he drinks himself silly. uh, Not because he's trying to drink himself to forget. He's trying to... He's trying to drink himself silly to see, has this pleasure added any meaning to my life? And he concludes, no. 
And then he gets to, and then he gets to this point here where he's like, well, after I've done all my own philosophical stunts and realized I'm, that a life of pleasure is not pleasurable because life doesn't give you a steady stream of pleasurable moments, now he turns to work. And he's, a, he's bothered by oppression. There's people with power and they're abusing their power. And there's people with no power and this cycle is continuing throughout world history. And we see this across every culture. We see this across every generation. There's no culture that's innocent. All of us have abused power. And we've gone through cycles of how to use power. We say, no, that political party, they're abusing power. This political party, they'll use it right. I don't know. If you study world history, we've been around this mountain many times, right? But the, but the thing is, we've, we've seen how the abuses of power are continually uh, plaguing our, our culture, and Solomon sees this even now. What's interesting is what's underneath it? What's, what's underneath all of these abuses of power? Why is Solomon so mad about this? In verse 4, he gives us a hint, and he says, all work and all skill come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Wow. So underneath all of the, underneath all of the abuse of power is greed and wanting more and something in the human soul that says, this isn't enough, we need more. And so it, it manifests itself. It's amazing, 950 BC, keeping up with the Joneses. But this is what he notices. He says, oh my goodness, and maybe you're new to church or you're new to the scriptures or maybe this is one of your first Sundays at Redeemer and you're thinking, I don't know about this. It just seems like Solomon's negative. The Bible's negative. People are good people. Maybe the Bible just has a low anthropology. But 600 years after Solomon wrote this, this a secular philosopher, Plato, came to the same conclusions. That, that the human heart is sick. That's the way Plato talked about it. He came to the same conclusions as, as Solomon. When he, uh, in, his, in, his, in his Republic, which I reference often, because I'm so amazed, not, the Republic is not inspired, by the way, but it, I'm amazed at how it paved the way for a lot of Greeks and Romans to believe in Jesus which is a conversation for another time. But the, but the thing is, he, in, in the second book of, of the Republic, Plato says this. He says, hey, if you want to have a just city, here's what you need. Everybody gets a house. Everybody gets food. Everybody gets shelter and clothing. There. Now you don't need a government because everybody just putters around and does their own thing and you love your, your family and you eat and you drink and you have a good life. And then there's a young philosopher named Glaucon, and he goes, no, 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 we don't like that, because where's the luxury? There's no, he said, there's no relishes. We want relishes. I don't want to just have a house and food and clothes. And Plato goes, oh, you want luxury. Oh, well, you see, if you happen to have a plot of land where there is no luxury, then how are you going to get luxury? Well, we got to go over here and take this guy's stuff. And then he begins to unfold world history. Long, long before Plato, this was already happening. You go, you take what you want, you wipe your blood from your sword, and then you plant fields and you start a civilization. This has been world history. So Solomon's keying in on this. He's going, what's underneath all of it? He's going, it seems like there's just this chronic dissatisfaction deep in the soul of man. And so that's why Solomon concluded that without God, life under the sun, it's truly empty. It's, it's very empty um, because we need more. And the problem is... the. To fill the emptiness, it means increasing consumption. And if you need increase, if you need to, if the way to be happy is to increasingly consume things, then you have to have an increase of production, work. So then we get this vivid picture 
in verse 4, striking image where, where Solomon says, we've got two handfuls of work striving after the wind. The wind is the pleasure. Pleasure is like the wind. You can feel it. You can be refreshed by it. You can enjoy it, but you can't grab it. And Solomon says, we're chasing for this pleasure that never ends. We're chasing for this life of happiness and comfort that is without horizon. But we have two fistfuls of work. So we can't clasp anything. It's a great image. Because we have to continually increase. We have to continually get more. This is where Solomon's going with this. But we can't hang on to any of it. And why do we have two fistfuls of work? Because the fistfuls of work are actually about curating our identity. Why are we, the reason we're doing it is not because is not for the work in and of itself. Work is good. Work is beautiful. God gave work before there was sin. Gave Adam work to do. So work is glorious. Utilizing your gifts, your abilities, the brains God gave you. Beautiful. Work is good. But this is not that kind of work. This is two fistfuls of activity grappling for a sense of identity. And now there's no pleasure. You know, he said earlier in, in his book, Solomon said earlier in chapter 2, when he looked back on, on, on his work and two fistfuls of, of work, you know, all the work that he did, he said, I hate my life. I hate it. He ended, up despising the, he ended up despising the work. How did that happen? Well, it happened because there was never enough. And we all know this, right? It's like, okay, you had a great week at work. Yes, we finally closed the deal. Whoa. Woo. Now we have to, now, we, okay, now the next week has come. Okay, now we have to, you have, the, you have, you have your uh, board meeting after the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter. Okay, great. Do the stockholders feel good about things? Okay, the trajectory, how are things going? Okay, excellent. Okay, what are we going to do uh, next quarter? Okay, now you've got to ramp it up again. Is everybody done patting themselves on the shoulders? Because here we go again. So Solomon's like, oh, I hate my life. Not because work in and of itself is bad, but because work was the means by which he was garnering, trying to get a sense of meaning, and then it's not ending. And so he's going, oh my goodness, this is a cycle that I'm not interested in. This is actually quite, this is actually quite depressing. There's no amount of attaboys that's going to compensate for feeling of meaningless in the soul trying to curate our meaning from work. And so when we get to verse 7, he says, there's no end to the work, but yet our eyes are not satisfied. There's this guy, he says, he doesn't even have a family, but he's working, 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 never stops working, and he's not satisfied, and he never stops to ask himself why. And when you think about it, it's because he get, we, he, this gentleman that, that Solomon saw that he wrote about, we can see ourselves in there, because it's like, yeah, he got stuck in that, he got stuck in that uh, cycle. My, my grandmother would say it this way. My grandma was from, or is from, is from uh, Guyana, British Guyana. So my grandmother would always say this to me. She would say, oh my goodness, Paul, this crazy white man country, I ain't able, it's so stupid. Run, 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 rush, rush, rush. Crazy rat race, everybody rushing, everybody running. It's my grandmother. I grew up hearing that my whole life. Put a hat on, you're so stupid. Everybody run, run, run. Run and run, run, rat race. That's what Solomon sees. He's so frustrated by it. Solomon's frustrated by the rat race. He can't handle the rat race. Think about how we talk about work as, as Canadians to get it. To, let's, let's put some flesh on this. We say, um, we say, hey, find out what you're passionate about and then find a way to get paid for it, right? Which in and of itself is not a, not a bad idea. But if you say, well, why though? You know why? There's lots of generations that couldn't just do what they were passionate about. 
There's lots of people around the world, globally speaking, that can't just do that. They have to just go and do some simple little thing. They may not be passionate about it, but why? I mean, it isn't wrong, but why? And we'll say, well, because if you do what you're passionate about, you'll be fulfilled. In other words, the way to be fulfilled is to get on a treadmill with no end and work. The way to be fulfilled (laughs) is to go to a dance audition that never stops, where the judges keep on putting up marks and you just got to keep dancing. The the way to fulfillment is this ongoing (laughs) treadmill of activity that has no off switch, performance evaluations with no horizon. That's what gives us fulfillment and meaning. Work is good. Work is beautiful, but not that kind of work. Not the, not not when not when your identity is hinged uh, to and uh, to that thing. That is not going to bring rest to your restlessness. And so, if we make work our source of meaning, which is Solomon's point in this particular text, senselessness, you know, meaninglessness breaks through your work. Or if you don't have work, or you lose your work, or you can't work or you retire and you've just ceased from a life of work, if your identity is, is hinged to that, the meaninglessness is going to break through your work or your lack of work. It's like plowing water. And this is what Solomon sees. Man, to try and locate your identity there is like plowing water. And this is difficult for us as North Americans because if you drink excessively or if you... Uh, if you eat excessively or if you stare at your phone excessively, you know, pe- people will, will notice that. Be, oh my goodness, maybe this is a problem. They'll speak to you. But if you work excessively as a North American, people are like, yeah, no, that's good. You know, uh, good job. You're a hard worker. Wow, what a leader. What a world changer. You know, they're just getting it done. And so it's very difficult for us because there's such a busy badge that we get an- awarded in North America. It's very easy for us to break that <laughs> Break that law. It's why when you talk to people, hey, how you doing? Oh, man, busy. So crazy busy. Oh, busy, busy, crazy busy. My life is so busy. It just, I just can't get over the crazy. You know, when, every, when was the last time you talked to somebody you said, hey, how's work going? And they said to you, you know, it's going pretty good. I work 45, 50 hours a week, and it's pretty good. But no, it's always like, oh, man, 70 hours, 80 hours a week. Oh, it's crazy. Oh, it's always 70, 80 hours. Why? Because they're like, behold the busy patch. Bask in my greatness. It's like the person who's killing themselves in the kitchen on Thanksgiving dinner. There's 55 people for, over for dinner. They're dying in there. You go in to help them. And they're like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. We've got it. Yes, we've got it. Go, go enjoy yourselves. <laughs> you leave, you go. They're in there being, you know, turkey martyrs. What is happening? I'll tell you what's happening. Identity. Your identity is in the turkey. You turkey? Just let people come in and help you. But this is what Solomon's dealing with here. And he's seeing it. He's seeing through it. He's challenging it. So what do we do? What's the answer? Where's the hope in all of this? Well, Solomon gives us a clue. He nudges us towards the answer in verse 6. He says, one handful of quietness. One handful of quietness. Very interesting. Break this text down. What do you see? Two handfuls of work. You got one guy with no handful of work. Solomon 
throws one little verse out to the guy who doesn't want to work. He's capable of working, but he doesn't work. He goes, well, that fool folds his hands and starves. Get to work. Get, not people who can't work because they've got some sort of a uh, situation uh, in, their, in their heart or their mind or their physical body that makes them unable to work. I mean, someone who's able-bodied, able to work and doesn't work. Solomon throws one little verse that way, but the rest of this thing, he says, you've got two fistfuls of work, you've got one guy with no, no work, and then he says you've got a fistful of work and a handful of quietness. Now, before you think the rest of the sermon is about work-life balance, let me just stop you right there. It is not. Wouldn't that be a severe philosophical disappointment if Solomon was like, the answer is... Ready for it? It's so deep, you guys. Work hard, play hard. That's not what this is. That's not where this is going. He says what we need is one handful of quietness and one handful of work. What does that mean? Let's let's break this. Let's break this out. It's so good. It's so beautiful. In the Hebrew, the, the handful of quietness is melochatnahat, which means restful tranquility. A soul that is at a rest that is so rich, so deep, so sweet. We have calm in our souls while we work. It's, it's not a little bit of work and a little bit of play. It's what we actually need is a handful of quietness so that while we work, there's a rest in our work. How do we do this? This is the good news of the gospel. You see, because entering into rest is the massive overarching theme of the Bible, right? The fact that our souls are restless and they remain restless and we need God. That's why we need the gospel message. The gospel message is this. Jesus Christ, he lived the perfect life that we should be living, but we're not. He trusted God in a way that we should all be trusting him, but we aren't. And then he died an atoning death for us and he rose on the third day and his resurrection then he scandalously gives his perfect righteous record to us so that our identity could be relocated. Not in the earth that's passing away, not in the pleasure that you can't hang on to, not in the job that could change tomorrow. Relocate our identity so we can actually have a handful of quietness. So we can have a tranquility that is pervasive. See, he doesn't say, put the work down and pick up the tranquility. He doesn't say, run off and leave it all behind you so you can find some peace and rest. What Solomon is saying we need and what Jesus Christ actually provides is a tranquility that is so rich and so deep, we get to have it and enjoy it while our hand is full of work. While we're still going through life, we're not trying to bracket out reality so we can get some peace. The gospel invites us to have peace in the midst of our reality. And this is where our hope is found. See, maybe you're here this morning and your faith is not in Christ. You've got questions or you're working, you're, you know, you're working things out. You're, think, you're trying to be thoughtful about it. You know, I don't, you know, I'm not sure what I think about God and what I think about Jesus and the resurrection. Maybe that's you. Here's what I would provoke you to consider. You are still working for your salvation. Something to, I'm using the word salvation. You are still looking to something to save you, to give a sense of meaning to you, validation to you. 
you are still looking for something so that when you wake up in the morning, you say, yeah, this is what I'm living for. This is what's making my life make sense. So you're still looking for a savior, a small s savior. What what Solomon is provoking through this philosophical treatise is whatever it is that you're looking for, it's not going to do the job because there's no end to it because something is always threatening it. And the gospel invites us away from temporal things that can steal the pleasure, steal the joy, steal the hope. It points us to Jesus Christ so that through him and in him we can find true rest and tranquility in our souls. This rest, it's a, it's a rest from that identity curating work in our work. That's what the rest is. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17 it says, The Lord your God is among you. He's mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Solomon says we need a handful of quiet. The gospel says that God offers the handful of quiet. He actually quiets you, quiets your soul with his love. He rejoices over you with singing. How many of you have ever watched a little kid run a race? Maybe you're a parent or a brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle. You'll watch a little kid run a race. When you're watching that little kid run the race, what are, what are the things that you say to them? You're cheering them. You're like, yeah, go, go, go. And w- when the race is over, what do you say to that little kid? You don't say, I love watching you win. You don't say, I loved watching you come in eighth. You say, I loved watching you run. That's God singing over you. You're his. He loves watching you run. And so in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he offers you the handful of quiet. Knowing as he's whispering in your ear, like a parent whispers into the ear of their sleeping infant how much they love them. God sings over you and rejoices over you. You He's offering your heart, he's offering your soul a handful of quiet in your work. Like a parent that makes up songs about their kids and sings to the child because they just love this, loves the child. That's God singing over us in his great love. God meets the problem of our unrest with rest. He quiets us with his love. He gives us the handful of quietness because the way that you begin the Christian faith is the way you continue it. It's by grace. How did, we, how did our Christian faith begin? It began because Jesus took a handful of nails so that we could have a handful of quietness. And that's how we continue. Recalibrating and reorienting our hearts. In this shifting shifting world of restlessness, this is where we find rest. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary of working and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and I will give rest to your souls. He doesn't say, come to this and find rest. Come to that and find rest. The scriptures don't say, do this to find rest, or do that to find rest. It says, we come to a person to find rest. Jesus says, come to me. You don't come to a principle, you come to a person. You don't come to some sort of a system. You come to a savior. Jesus says, come to me and find rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. What does that even mean? Take my yoke upon you and I'll give you rest. What does that mean? A yoke takes two things and unites them as one. 
Jesus is saying, unite yourself to me and I'll give you rest. How do you get united to Jesus? Not by work, by grace. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Unite yourself to me. Be united to me. And that's how you, that's how you plow through life with a handful of quietness. United to your Savior as he's continually singing his love into your heart. As you work. And so when Solomon asks, how can we go through this life with a handful of quietness? Jesus' answer is, I am your quietness. The Father planned on rescuing you from restlessness. The Son took your restlessness. And the Spirit is now continually leading you out of restlessness. And so it's better to have one handful of quietness than two hands full of work, church, striving after the wind. And I have good news. The Lord is mighty to save. He will quiet you with his love. You are united to Christ. And he will give you rest.